Verse 1 in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. For you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So John MacArthur writes in his commentary that we've been using for Galatians, he says, The book of Galatians has been conferred with such titles as the Magna Carta of spiritual liberty, the battle cry of the Reformation, and the Christian's declaration of independence. It is clearly the Holy Spirit's charter of spiritual freedom to those who have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that's what we're studying. We're studying this book of Galatians, this, this great book declaring to us our independence in Christ, our, de- our deliverance from the law. So we've been going through this book and we've seen how Paul is attempting to expose the false teaching which has been brought into the church. He to start off, he defended his authority. It was given to him by both God and men. He, and this is the authority to proclaim this revelation from God. He made the case for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and has challenged the believers to avoid these false teachers who are attempting to place them back in bondage through the works of the law. Throughout this whole letter, he has reminded them of their freedom in Christ alone, apart from any of their good work. Paul finishes up in chapter 4 with the comparison of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, the child of a slave woman, and Isaac, the child of the free woman. We're not like Ishmael, children of the slave, but Isaac, children of the free woman. We've been made free. We're no longer slaves to sin. It's right there at the end of chapter 4, what we're talking about, where he finishes up there saying, you know, you're, you're not of Ishmael, this slave woman. You're of Isaac, the free woman. You're free. So then he begins into chapter 5 in that first verse we read, which was covered last week by Nathan, I believe, I wasn't here, where he talked about, he says, he declares the reason for our salvation and his disdain for the false teachers. And it's freedom. It is for freedom which Christ has set us free. So he's moving in the book of Galatians right here from a correction, or correcting doctrine, to more of an application. He has thoroughly explained how the believer is made right before God 
and the error of trusting in the law for righteousness. Now he's going to address the implications or the application of this truth. For freedom, Christ has set you free, so stand firm. Resist these wicked teachers. Resist these false teachers that's come in your midst and tried to put you back into bondage. Don't allow yourself to be taken back into bondage. In verses 2 to 12, we see just how Paul felt about the false teachers and their wicked doctrine. He's got a complete disdain for those who are teaching this false doctrine and the unrighteousness and the dangerous fruit it produces. It's so much so that he makes that scandalous comment in chapter 5, verse 12, where he desires for those bringing this false doctrine to emasculate themselves. It's a pretty harsh statement by Paul. That's how much he has hatred and disdain for what they were teaching. He says, if they're going to teach circumcision, if you remember, just go ahead and just go all the way. Just emasculate yourselves. He, he hates it because it puts people back in, in bondage. Their attempt to undermine the work of Christ on the cross and the lives of the believers caused Paul to respond like this. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. And that, that is why he's so emphatic in his call to avoid this foolish teaching. It says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Reminds me of uh, Psalm 40, verse 2. He drew me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Starts off, for you were called to freedom. The Christian is the only being in the universe who can ever experience the freedom found in Christ. Think about that. There's a song I actually heard last week. It just popped up. It's a, uh, it's a Shy Lin rap guy. But he's a Christian rapper. He has some really good lyrics. And he talks about this song where this angel comes down and is talking to the Christian. This Christian's complaining about God and all, all these things. And he says, I, I can't experience salvation the way you can as an angel. I, I would love to know. You know, the Bible talks about the angels would look into these things. I would love to know what it's like to be rescued and delivered from the bondage of sin the way you have been. Animals can't experience this. The angels don't experience it. Only human beings can experience that deliverance from the bondage of sin. We're in bondage. We're under the control of our sinful nature and our father, the devil. We were dead in our trespass. We were blind. We're desperate, lost, and hopeless. Then Jesus redeemed us out of this bondage and made us free. I'm going to repeat this so much so that you're going to get sick of hearing it this morning. You're going to say, I think I get it. Well, I don't think we do. I, I, I don't think we do. We've been delivered from bondage. When we are in sin, we have no choice but to serve our wicked, sinful flesh, and we enjoy it. And then Christ came and delivered us. We'll read Psalm 42 again. 40 verse 2 he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure that's a, de a description of all who have been called out of sin 
delivered from the bondage of sin and the ravages of sin and put on the path of righteousness. He says, you were called. Notice that Paul doesn't say that you earned your freedom or you found your freedom. I think that's important here. He makes it very clear that we were called to freedom. No one comes to the Father unless He draws Him. He's been dealing with these false teachers and they're putting the church back into bondage of legalism by teaching that they must do in order to receive, right? Saying you got to do this to receive this. No Christian has ever been made from free from the bondage of sin and death by their own efforts. No Christian is ever going to remain free by keeping the law. So we've, we've not been made free by keeping the law, and we're not going to remain free by keeping the law. We enter into, into salvation by the grace of God. He calls us, for you were called to freedom. And we remain free by the grace of God. He keeps us. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. He's caused us, right, to be born again. And then we are receive this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. For you were called. This is the great work of God in the life of a believer. To call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then he says this, you were called to freedom brothers i think that's an important point here in this book you can see paul's love and care for the church here he calls them brothers you were called to freedom brothers paul may be correcting him in this book he may be using some harsh words for the false teaching that is being embraced by the church but he still loves them very much think about what he said so far in this book in chapter 1 verse 6 he says I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. I can't believe you've just abandoned this truth. He says in in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you're foolish. In verse 3, chapter 3, verse 3, he asks, are you so foolish? He calls out their foolish behavior of accepting this. And in verse, chapter 4, verses 10 through 11, he says, I'm worried that may, maybe I've labored in vain. Chapter 4, verse 20, he says, I wish I could be there and change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. He used some really harsh words leading up to this point in this, in this book. He even says, I wish I could be among you so I could change my tone. I want to be there with you so I could change the tone that this letter is showing. Some very harsh uh, critique of the doctrines that you're accepting and the way you're, you're behaving. But in the end, he says, I love you. He calls them brothers. His harshness is not anger with just who they are. It's an anger with the teachers 
that are bringing this false teaching and the enemy that's causing disruption and in anger with this teaching itself. But he still loves the church. Paul loves them. In Philippians 1.6, see the heart of him where he says, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion at the day of Christ. See, his harsh words were born out of a compassion for those he loved. His true anger was reserved for those false teachers who were leading his brothers and sisters back into bondage. Remember verse 12. Remember how he spoke about them. There was no compassion at all for those false teachers. He loves the church. There's his brothers and sisters in Christ. He knows the truth of God's ability to preserve his people. Just because there was some bad teaching going around and some of them were even beginning to accept this false doctrine, Paul doesn't assume that they're no longer brothers. He loves them. He cares for them. He's challenging them, being harsh, because he wants to call them back to the truth. He holds out hope that they have truly entered into the family of God and will be sanctified by him. Remember in Philippians, what did he say? He says, I'm sure of this. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And verse that we've heard very, very often in Romans 8.30, was he say? And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. That's Paul's confidence in the believer. He can call him out harshly for the way he's behaving or some teaching that he's accepting. But he can do it in love. He still has confidence that they are his brothers and that Christ will transform them. They're his brothers in spite of some bad behavior and he trusts that the one who has called them will keep them. So he goes on here, he says, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So Paul's teaching on freedom has caused many to claim he was teaching a form of lawless Christianity. The same is true today a lot of times. When you teach of the free grace of God, you're often accused of condoning Christians who get saved and then just continue to live any way they want. Anybody ever heard that accusation? How often have you heard someone say when you're sharing the gospel or explaining the true grace of God, they'll say, oh, so what you're saying is that you can just get saved and do whatever you want. Just live any way you want to. Christ will just continue to forgive your sins. It's ridiculous. Paul deals with it right away here in verse, in verse 13. He says, the believer, says to the believers, you have been called to freedom. You've been set free in Christ, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You are free. You are no longer a, a slave held in the inescapable pit of sin. You've been set free. You're not in that pit. You've been pulled out of that pit. However, now that you're free, don't use your freedom irresponsibly. This makes perfect sense when you think about it. So think about this. When Paul is saying here is that you were in bondage to sin. and sin, you spent your days fulfilling the desires of your flesh. That's what you did. You gave in to every wicked desire you had. Well, maybe not all of them. But some of you may have done a little bit better. Some maybe held back and, and refrained a little bit from all-out debauchery. But even in that, you were still serving your fleshly desires. Let's clarify what he means by flesh here. Flesh is not referring to your physical body, 
but to the sinful nature which we were all born with. Our natural inclination towards sin. He's not saying to avoid eating because you're hungry or sleeping because you're tired or you notice a beautiful sunset or avoid the love of a godly spouse and holy marriage or even sleeping on a comfortable bed. He's not saying that is an opportunity to flesh. Don't avoid those normal things your body needs. All of these things have been promoted by false teachers who have misinterpreted the term flesh here. They've taught a denial of basic human needs in order to achieve great spiritual blessing. That's not what Paul is referring to here. He's telling them, you've been made free from sin. It would be absolutely absurd now to use that freedom as an opportunity to gratify those sinful desires. So you lived in the flesh, serving your natural sinful desires. You were set free from that. How absurd would it be to be delivered from that and then go back and use that freedom to serve those natural sinful desires? It it would make no sense at all. What would be the point of Christ making you free from sin so that you could continue doing what you were already doing? You were already free to do what your flesh wanted to do. If that is the purpose of your freedom, Christ, then it's of no use. Nothing has changed. If you see your freedom, your liberty that God has given you as an opportunity to just continue serving your sinful desires and say, I get to do this. Can't tell me what to do. You don't know Christ. Nothing's changed. You're the same as you were before. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity to fulfill your sinful appetite. Then he says, but. But. But instead of using your freedom this way, serving your flesh, use it the right way. But through love, serve one another. So here Paul gets to the reason for our freedom. We've been made free from the bondage of sin so that we can serve God and his people. We're now free to love. So what's the opposite of serving our flesh, our sinful desires? Loving and serving others. What's the antidote for serving our flesh when we get drawn back into serving our sinful desires? Loving and serving others. We've been called to freedom to love and serve others. Before we were born again, we were selfish and prideful. Even our good works were born out of sinful motivations. Pride, Think about before you were saved. Maybe you were a pretty good person. Maybe you did the right thing. You worked hard. You were respectable. You you served even in the food bank. Doesn't mean that it was good in God's eyes just because you did good things. The motivation was still sinful. It was prideful. It was a desire to be respected, a need to be accepted. Selfish ambition. I want to have a nice house and a good life people to think well of me or maybe it was just a hope that god would accept us because we've done so good any of those things are wrong motivations now that we've been made free to love and serve others we're not hindered by our sinful desires we've been brought into the family of god and given the freedom to love one another just as christ has loved us you can now truly love others that's what you can do as a christian you've been set free from that bondage of sin you've been set free from that that trap 
that had you serving your own self in many ways. It, it, it manifests in a million different ways in people, but it's all sinful. And now that you've been delivered from that, you can truly love one another. And then he goes on to say that. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus talked about the law, he summarized it this way. In Matthew 22, he says, love God and love your neighbor. Summarize the law there. Paul sums this up by referring back to Leviticus 19, where he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says that the whole law can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Unconditionally, love unconditionally and sacrificially the way God loves us and your neighbor, okay? Well, that's how to love. Who do I love? Love my neighbor. The word is, is, means is who, those that are in near proximity to me. In the story of the Good Samaritan, they asked what? Who's my neighbor? Our neighbor is anyone in our proximity with whom we can share God's love. We don't need to go on long trips or tra- travel to distant lands to fulfill this. We just need to look around. There are people everywhere who need to have an interaction with someone who will love them and tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. You're surrounded by those people. Just love everyone who's around you. That's your neighbor. Beginning with those who you should be spending the most time with. The church. Love everyone in your proximity. That's your neighbor. Those in your close proximity. And who should be in your closest proximity? The church. That's who your your closest group of friends and people should be. And that's who we should be loving first and foremost. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. How exactly are we love one another? The same way we love ourselves. We protect ourselves. You know, somebody comes up and tries to punch me. I'm not just going to stand there and let it happen, right? I'm going to try to get out of the way. I'm going to guard myself. We need to guard one another. We provide for my well-being. I got up this morning. I had a cup of coffee and made me some food. I was hungry. I look out for the well-being of those around me. I look out for my own best interest, right? I make sure that I'm, I'm taken care of. I don't put myself in positions that's going to harm myself. Maybe I should do that with one another. In the same way, we're to love others. It's pretty simple. Love others the way you love ourselves. By doing this, we will be fulfilling the whole law. We'll be loving and serving God by loving and serving others. Paul's been dealing with false teachers who have been putting the people of God back in bondage by teaching them to keep the commands of the law in order to be made right before God. He now takes them right back to the law and tells them, okay, so you want to keep the law. Well, here's what you do. You love one another. Love one another the same way you love yourself. That's the summary of the law. This is why legalism is so attractive. It's safe. It's clearly defined and it feeds our pride and our flesh. True Christianity crushes our pride. It's not this set uh, list of things that we can check off. 
It's not a clearly defined plan. It leaves us relying completely on the grace of God to follow his commands, which he gets to next week in verse 16 on how to do this, how to practically do this. Legalism says, follow this list of rules. Be circumcised. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. Rely on him. Look around. Figure it out. Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Abide in Christ as he guides you on how to love one another. What happens if this freedom is abused? What's the result of someone who sees their freedom or liberty as an opportunity to serve the flesh rather than God and others? Verse 15 is where he goes on. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Those who abuse the freedom given them in Christ to indulge in their passions and desires have no love for God or his people. They will destroy one another because of their selfish pride. To consume one another kind of has this idea of using something up like money. It says if you bite and devour one another, take care lest you be consumed by one another. It's, it's like you have a pocket full of quarters and you go about throughout the day Quarters is probably with inflation wasn't, isn't going to work anymore, but we'll just pretend that you got a big pocket full of quarters. And you go about the day just using that money, right? Get up in the morning, got a bunch of money in my pocket, and I go out and I just I buy some coffee. And I go get a sandwich for lunch. I grab a snack in the afternoon. Am I going to leave that money just laying around and not care about it? No, I'm going to protect it, right? I'm going to guard it. But do I truly value the money? What do I value? I value what the money can get me, right? I don't really value the money. I'm using that money. I'm consuming that money. I'm using it up for my own personal gain, my own personal benefit. I, don't, I could care less about the money. If it gets dirty, like, ah, wipe it off and, and go use it. As long as that money gets me what I want, I'm okay with how it's treated. I'm okay with it. I, I, I don't care about it, truly. The one who takes a selfish view of their freedom will not love their brothers or sisters in Christ. Instead, they will use them like that pocket of money for their own benefit until they are no longer useful for them. They may appear to show love for others, but in reality, they only value what they can get out of them. You know, the way we are told to love others, the way we are told to use our freedom is to love others in a way that we truly value them as we love ourselves. We're not to love others just because of what they can do for us. Now that's when it starts to get kind of difficult, doesn't it? Because we have to love others when they're not easy to love. We have to love others when I don't feel like it, when I don't have the time. We have to go out of our way to care for others. We don't want to be like these people who bite and devour one another and consume one another. They just use their freedom in Christ to just use others for their own personal benefit. Those who do this, they're not true believers. True believers love one another. They don't use one another. 1 John 3.11 says, We know that we have passed from death into life because what we love the brothers. And in John 15, we've recently looked at that here, says, love one another as I have loved you. How did Christ love us? God, the creator. 
gave his life, gave up all of heaven to come down and offer his life on our behalf. That's how we're to love one another. Christianity is not freedom from any obligation or responsibility. We're not to live as they did in the time of Judges where every man was just doing what was right in his own eyes. In salvation, we are the ones who are changed. God never changes. He desires holiness the same after you have been saved just as he did before you were saved. The difference is in the propitiation made for us and the power given to us. We're now declared righteous and given the ability to live righteous. We are free to live no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for our sake and was raised. Christianity is not anarchy. It is, it is an exchange of allegiance. We were slaves to sin, set free from sin, and now we are slaves to righteousness. We were under a yoke of bondage, now we are under a yoke of freedom. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might lo- no longer live for themselves, but for him who, died, who for their sake died and was raised. I'm going to read that again. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That has become one of my favorite verses recently. I say recently, multiple years recently. Because it reminds me, it guards me against trying to live for God in a way that becomes a legalistic type of, of, of life. It reminds me why I get up and do what I do. Why do I live as a Christian? What is my motivation as a Christian? I've been set free. Now what motivates me to go and use that freedom the way God would want me to use it? The motivation is the love of Christ. Reminding myself. Get up every day and remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself that you've been delivered. Remind yourself that Jesus died for you. Remind yourself of the goodness and the kindness of God in your life and allow his love to motivate you to live in the way that he's called you to live. It's a wonderful passage to meditate on and be reminded constantly. My motivation is not to impress any of you. My motivation is not to be thought of well in my community. My motivation is not to be praised by anybody. It shouldn't be. My motivation is not to have a good life. My motivation is not to just simply live good and not sin. My motivation is the love of Christ. Knowing who he is, what he's done for me, motivates me now. If I don't understand that proper motivation then I'll take my freedom that has been given to me by Christ and I will abuse it. I will use it improperly. We've been set free through his sacrificial life. And now that we have been made truly alive, we no longer live for ourselves, serving our sinful desires. We live for him who made us free. I I know this uh, section of scripture, 
It's often used to talk about our liberty from the negative view. It's used uh, sometimes where it talks about how we must limit our liberty for the weaker brother. There's a lot we can say about this, and, and it's there as well. But I've chose not to look exactly into that part as we went through this section. It's something that, it's something that every believer should consider, though. How do my liberties of conscience affect my brother? There's a lot of discussion that can be had about how this practically plays out in the life of the believer. However, if we consider the truths that we've discussed today regarding Christian liberty or freedom, I believe the right course of action will be clear to the one who is living according to the call to love his brother. When you run into those situations, it will be clear to you if you're motivated by the love of Christ, you understand your freedom properly, and you use your freedom to love your brother. It will be clear. He'll not use his freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love will serve his brother. He'll no longer be concerned about what is permissible, but he'll be more concerned with looking for ways to love one another. You've been made free. You're no longer bound by sin working through your flesh. You're free to serve God with all your heart, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. 